Mexico. And uh, one of the books that captivated me as a child was the story of Harriet Tubman. And Harriet was an African-American slave. And she escaped to freedom via a network uh, that was known as the Underground Railroad. And she eventually made her way uh, by herself and with the help of others from the deep south in the United States up to the American Northeast. And eventually, she ended up in, of all places, St. Catharines, Ontario. But instead of staying put in St. Catharines and enjoying her newfound freedom and liberty in Canada, Harriet chose to undertake a daring series of raids or returns or rescues back into the deep south. And she went back to gather members of her family and uh, hundreds of others that she rescued from slavery. And they were very dangerous operations. And she became so well known in the Underground Railroad that they gave her a nickname. And her nickname was Moses. She was the one who was letting people go and bringing them to freedom. And she had this deep sense of commitment that she herself had found freedom, but that wasn't enough. She wanted to help others find and live out a sense of freedom as well. And her commitment to lead people into freedom has now been brought to the big screen this month in the movie uh, that bears her name, Harriet. And the theme of uh, slavery and freedom comes up time and time again in this New Testament book that we're studying this fall, the book of Galatians. And it's not in Galatians about slavery to other people like it was in the American South, but it's about a slavery to wrong ideas and wrong thinking about how we relate to God and other people that has the author of Galatians so concerned. And Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was one of the leaders in the early Christian movement in the first century, and Paul himself was born into a Jewish family, and he trained under one of the top rabbis of his day, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. So he would have, it would have been like attending the Harvard of his day. I mean, he was schooled by the best of the best in what it meant to be a studious and religious and passionate follower of Judaism. But Paul was also born and grew up in a Roman city in modern-day Turkey. He grew up in Tarsus, in Cilicia. And so Paul had this unique mix in his own life. He was a Jew by training and a Roman citizen by birth. And so he had both of those understandings. And all of his early life, we read in the book of Acts, he was committed to persecuting those who disagreed with or did not follow the Jewish way of life and keep the Jewish law as it was recorded in the Old Testament. But then we see that Paul has this dynamic and dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life is totally transformed. And he begins to set aside some of those things that previously he held as so dear. And he begins to move into a place where he is an apostolic church planter. And he goes around and travels around the Mediterranean. 
and he uh, preaches, and many people come both from Jewish background and non-Jewish background and respond to the message of the gospel that Paul is preaching. And one of those places where Paul finds warm response is in Galatia, a city that's not that far from where he grew up in Turkey. And Paul had this warmth then towards the people who came to faith in Galatia. And as he continues his travels, he's long since left there, and he hears word that there's trouble back in Galatia. And there's tension building between those who are advocates of saying, well, in order to become a Christian, be part of God's new family that he's building, you still have to follow all of the Jewish laws and the Torah. And those who are saying, no, I didn't have that background. I don't share that. I believe that there's freedom that is to be found in Christ. And if Christ sets us free, we're free. And so this tension is building and coming to the surface in this Christian community. And so Paul writes the letter, the letter of Galatians, to this group of people. And in Paul's mind, one of the things that he's worried or concerned about is that they're going to go backwards. Having found and discovered freedom in Christ, they're going to fall back into slavery. It's an image that he uses over and over again. And Paul is determined to help them keep and advance the liberty that they have found in following Jesus. And he wants that not just for them, but for you and I as contemporary readers also. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to look at the first half of the chapter this week, and then we'll finish off chapter 5 next week. And then on the 24th, we'll do all of chapter 6, and then we'll be in our Advent series starting on December 1st. The first Sunday of Advent, we'll focus on peace for our Advent series. And so, we saw a little bit before, last week we ended in chapter 5, verse 1, and Paul has very strong language here. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Paul says, so, Christ has truly set us free. Make sure that you stay free and you do not get tied up again in slavery to the law. Now, the image that he's using here, if you have a different translation, maybe the English Standard Version, uh, says the yoke of slavery to the law. And a yoke is uh, just like chains that bound human slaves together that were being trafficked. An ancient yoke held two oxen together. And the the yoke rested on the shoulders and crossed over between the two oxen. And the objective or idea behind a yoke is that you can keep your oxen then pulling in the same direction. You're harnessing the power of both oxen in alignment, moving together so that one couldn't head off in this direction and another head off in this direction. And Paul uses this image and he says to them clearly and firmly, if you want to harness yourself to the law, if you want to get in lockstep with the Torah, the ancient rules and laws that God gave to God's people, Israel, back at Mount Sinai, you're putting yourself into a locked-in relationship that's something that is headed somewhere. The law is taking you somewhere. And Paul says, if you want to be yoked in with the law, it is not going to lead you to places of freedom. It's a yoke 
of slavery. There's a slavish devotion that you're going to need to maintain because the law is going to keep you tied in with it. The same language of a yoke, a burdensome yoke, is used by the Apostle Peter. And in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where they're having this discussion and saying, you know, should we make Gentiles or non-Jews? What parts of Jewish culture and tradition should we have them follow? And Peter says in Acts 15:10, why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and Paul are both using this language of yoke to describe what it means to have a relationship with God or try to have one through the law. And maybe Peter's thinking here about his conversations that they had with Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is describing what it means to come and follow him. And Jesus says, you're going to get a yoke all right. You're going to come in lockstep with me. But when you get the yoke that Jesus offers you, Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Keep in step with me. But it's not, a, it's not a yoke of slavishness or slavery. Jesus is saying that relating appropriately to God is not first and foremost about keeping all of the right regulations. It's about harnessing yourself and being in a relationship with the right person, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune and one true God. And so the first thing that we see here in the discussion that Paul is laying down about the yoke of slavery to the law is, number one, we need to be careful about who or what we hitch ourselves to. Be careful about what or who you hitch yourself to or you get yoked together with. Steve Allen was an American humorist and an atheist, and he once said, ideas have consequences. Totally erroneous ideas are likely to have destructive consequences. And he was talking about, you know, if you let ideas and you hitch yourself to those ideas, where are they going to take you ultimately? So be careful what or who you hitch yourself to. This applies to relationships, it applies to businesses, it applies to all kinds of areas of our lives. But the false teachers in Galatia were saying, you know what you need to hook yourself to? You need to hook yourself in with the law. And their argument likely sounded pretty reasonable. They might have said something like, well, you know, the reason you want to hook yourself into the law is it's going to help you stay on track. How can you ever hope to win the battle against your evil desires that go on inside of you? I mean, there's only one way. You just got to come under the yoke of the law. After all, the law was given to guard and protect and keep you from evil. So why don't you just live under the law as your master, as your guide? It would be good for you. But Paul says, in contrast 
to this message of the false teachers. In Galatians 2.19, no, no, you and I have died to the law, he says. And in 3.25, he says, you're no longer under the tutelage or supervision of the law. And then in 5.1 here, he's even stronger and says, you are free, do not go back and become again a slave to the law. That is the wrong yoke to put on your shoulders because if you have been set free, you do not go back into slavery, except maybe for the purpose of helping others get free. And so Paul keeps right on going in Galatians 5, verse 2. He says, listen, I, Paul, I'm telling you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, that was one of the three primary things that we know the false teachers were advocating. They were advocating uh, participating in particular food laws that were from the Old Testament. They were advocating an observance of particular days and festivals, he said in chapter 4. And then they were strongly advocating for male circumcision as the sign of the covenant that God made with his people. And Paul says, if you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I will say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. And so... Here we're into the middle of a little bit of an uncomfortable bit of Torah observance when we talk about male circumcision. Because, let's face it, for us in the modern Western world, this is a non-issue. We're, we're not hyped about this in the same way that Paul is clearly on and on about this. I mean, if you want to do the snip-snip, fine. If not, whatever. It's not a salvific issue in any way for us. But in the ancient world, this was a really big deal. And the reason that it was a really big deal is because God gave it as an ancient sign of a covenant that God made with God's people back in the Old Testament. And it marked them as different or unique from any other nation, any other people, anywhere in the world. It was practiced by Jews throughout history. On the eighth day, they would take their sons to be blessed and to be circumcised. And Paul knows this because he himself would have been circumcised because he grew up as a good Jewish boy. And so Paul actually takes their argument about circumcision and cutting, and literally he's going to make a series of really bad puns and jokes that undercut this whole notion of circumcision. The false teachers are saying that in order to become part of God's family, you must be circumcised. It's not like an option. Maybe it would be nice or helpful. The false teachers are saying, no, you don't get into God's family unless you go through that doorway. And think about that for just a minute. The cost of conversion is actually a physically painful ritual. Like these are adults that Paul's talking about. This is not being done as infants, right? That is a high cost 
of conversion. And so these false teachers are getting traction in this conversation. And notice what Paul is saying that the false teachers are saying. They're not saying circumcision is a nice optional add-on to faith in Jesus. They're saying, no, 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 in order to be made right with God, you must be circumcised. And that's what Paul is taking issue with. Paul says, hmm, if you are going to say that the gospel of grace by faith, and then you add something to it, that cannot be tolerated. If you're going to add to your salvation in any way, Paul says, oh, you'd like to add to it. Oh, you'd best do some adding, all right then. You better look at verse 3. You're going to keep the whole law of Moses then. Don't just pick one circumcision. Actually go all the way. All 613 hyper-specific commands that the Torah insists on, why not just keep them all? Why just pick on one? You best get busy then trying to keep the law. And I suspect that the rival teachers had put forward those three, food laws, Sabbath keeping, and male circumcision because they're actually easy to police. You can tell if somebody's keeping the Sabbath or not. You can tell if they're eating foods offered to idols in a community. And thinking about the ancient world where privacy is a not a thing, we didn't, you know, you didn't have uh, baths in your own home or indoor plumbing. You went to the local communal place to bathe. And so people would know if you were circumcised or not circumcised. It was not a private issue. And so Paul is saying, if you're trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the Torah, oh, you're cutting yourself all right, but you're cutting yourself off from relationship with Jesus, and you need to cut it out. He has two puns that he lines up right back to back. And Paul's point that he's driving at here isn't even necessarily about circumcision. He's saying, you and I do not get to choose to add anything to saving faith. Faith comes by grace. It comes because of Jesus' work. It is a gift. It does not come by works of righteousness so that we can boast about all the great things that we have done, but according to God's mercy, God saved us. And so many times, a lot of the songs that we sing reinforce those truths to us, that this is by grace that we are saved through faith. Grace and grace alone through faith is what makes us right with God. Billy Graham's grandson, uh, author and pastor, Tulian Chavikian, puts this in mathematical terms. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Means if you've experienced and, and have Jesus, but you don't have anything else, you're rich, incomparably rich. But the same thing is true that Jesus plus anything else, layering in other means or strategies around salvation and saving faith means that you've got nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and Jesus plus anything equals nothing. 
In other words, if you have received Jesus, you've become part of God's family. You do not need to keep adding things into your relationship with God in order to gain God's favor and approval. If you do, you don't actually understand how the power of the grace that God gave you saved you and me. Think about it this way. We're putting an elevator in the building. It'll be right over there. And it would be ridiculous to go into an elevator with a ladder and think to yourself, well, while I'm going up, I might as well do some climbing of my own on this ladder. It would be silly. There's no need for it. It's useless. And the same thing is happening here in terms of adding in things to salvation. If you receive God's gracious free gift of faith and God's grace, then you don't need to take your ladder along for the ride and try and climb up a little bit higher in any way. It's useless and ridiculous. You just receive and live into it. And this is where Paul goes in the next few verses in Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. He says, but, or so, we who live by the Spirit, by God's Spirit, we eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness that God promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Those two verses are like a beautiful and concise thesis statement or summary of what Paul is arguing throughout the whole book of Galatians. He says, those who have placed their confidence in Christ are living a life of faith. And a life of faith is marked, one of the hallmarks of it is the work and person of the Spirit is indwelling you as a child of God. I love the way that our Mennonite Brethren Confession of Faith describes this. It says, the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, is the creative power, presence, and wisdom of God. The Spirit convicts people of sin, gives them new life, guides them into all truth. By the Spirit, believers are baptized into one body, and the indwelling Spirit of God testifies that we are God's children. The Spirit distributes gifts for ministry, the Spirit empowers us for witness. The Spirit produces in our lives the fruit of righteousness. We're going to get there next week. And as a comforter, the Holy Spirit helps God's children in our weaknesses and intercedes for them according to God's will and gives assurance of eternal life. That is what a life marked by the Spirit looks like. And we would expect to see those things in increasing measure in people who are maturing in their development and in their faith. The second thing Paul says is that there's an expectancy, a life of expectant righteousness that characterizes faith. In other words, one day God is going to declare righteous those who are part of Messiah's family. And God is going to do that 
because of their faith, not because of their deeds. God's verdict one day over your life will be finally and fully announced sometime in the future. And this future verdict gives meaning to present reality. When someone believes into a relationship with Jesus, they are expecting that God will declare them in right relationship with Jesus. And friends, when I talk to people, one of the things that people wrestle with, and maybe some of you here wrestle with it, is this sense of fear and dread about what is going to be spoken over your life in the end assessment. And you worry and think, well, have I done enough good stuff? Know that God somehow would, would speak merit over my life, would speak blessing, would speak love over my life? Or is God going to be somehow unhappy with you? And Paul says that is not the life of faith because those who live the life of faith have an expectancy that God's declaration over them because of Jesus' work is that God will declare them righteous. And if you live in any other declaration, that's a life of slavery. The language of the New Testament is that those who have placed their faith in Christ or into Christ Jesus have a kind of humble confidence that is not rooted in how they did this week or whether they fell back into old patterns of sin or not. It's rooted not in themselves, but in what God has done in and through Christ Jesus. And that gives us a confidence to live out of that place, waiting to eagerly hear God declare and proclaim us righteous because it's the righteousness of Christ that he's declaring over our lives. And so that gives a sense of confident hope when we think about that day, which will come for each one of us at some point. And friend, if you've not, if you're here today and you've never made that step of faith and obedience and you're worried and you're distressed about what will be spoken over my life, you can have and live a life of expectancy that God will declare righteousness over your life because of what Jesus has done. All those who are part of God's family and have expressed that by saving faith and saying yes to Jesus will receive that righteous declaration over their life. And so if you've never done that, today is the day for you, friend. Our prayer team will be available at the back at the end and I want you to go with them and pray with them and say, I'm not sure, I want to be sure. I want to hear God speak that word over my life. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That is a life of expectant righteousness. Paul says in verse 6 that a life of faith is also overflowing with love for other people. So much of the book of Galatians is focused on getting back to a place of unity and love. And in our post-enlightenment sensibilities, when we hear the word love, oftentimes we think then that no one will say anything sharp after that, that it'll just be warm fuzzies. But Paul says, I love you, and because I love you, I have some very strident things that you need to hear. And this 
is why saving faith is not only connected to a future hope, but also to present action. Because the Galatians have fallen into places where they're so focused on an internal conflict that the life of love is not overflowing, not only internally in the church, but it's not being reflected externally to those around them. And Paul says, you're forgetting a core part about what faith is. Faith is about not only our heads and what we believe intellectually, but it's also about our hearts, our emotions. It's also about our hands serving and, and engaging in the world around us. Faith is not merely, in the New Testament language, about an intellectual assent to a series of right propositional truths and a bunch of good or interesting ideas. Faith has to be lived out and expressed in meaningful ways in the world. And this is why at Jericho, we're strong on things like global mission and service. It's why a group of people at Jericho banded together. And over the course of the last number of years, people at Jericho have uh, sponsored three Syrian families to come to Canada. It's why we send a team down to Guatemala every year because we believe that it is important to display the love of Jesus practically to people in the world. That's why uh, today, Lindsay was in talking to the kids about their trip to India and how it means, what it means to actually give and serve and love people in different parts of the world and here locally as well. Because Paul says what is important is faith expressing itself in love. And sometimes in North America, we've bought into this idea that my head thinks correctly about Jesus, God, and my heart feels warm toward God, but then I don't do anything about it. And if faith is strictly an intellectual exercise, then Paul says that's not living life by the Spirit because faith has to express itself in meaningful ways, in love for others and in love for the world. And so a question that I ask myself and ask us regularly is, of those three things, is my faith more intellectual, emotional, or practical? And is there an area that maybe I'm stronger in? and an area that maybe I'm weaker in. For me, when I think about my faith, well, you just, I tip my hand, I think about my faith. I'm more prone to, if I want to grow in my walk with God, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to find a book, I'm going to read it, I'm going to explore something new intellectually that's, I find that, that invigorating, and it challenges me and drives me deeper in my faith. But if that's all I do, and I don't let God touch my emotions, and uh, touch uh, my parts of my finances and my time and serving practically, then I'm off balance in some way. And maybe for you, today's a good day to kind of sit and have a little bit of a thought and a conversation about where, what, what kind of balance do you have in those areas of your life? Maybe you're an activist. Maybe you're like, I just get out there and do things. That's how I express my faith. That's how I find my connection with God. And that's good. You're loving well. But maybe it would help you to spend some time learning to love God with your mind, 
listening, maybe some good podcasts or some books or articles or something. Maybe you're more of an intellect and you need to get out of your head a little bit. Maybe you need to go to Guatemala and serve and let that touch your emotions in a fresh way. Maybe you need to pick up a serving towel, set up some chairs, keep granola bars or, or bottled water in your car so that you can serve people here in our own city who don't have a home. Paul says, faith, yeah, faith is important, but it must express itself in love. And so Paul continues, and he's got a couple of metaphors to help really drive this point home. And he continues with a metaphor about cutting. And it's a, it's a race metaphor. In uh, verse 7, he says, you were running the race so well, Galatians. You got started into a race. It was awesome. It was good. Who has held you back or who has cut in on you and prevented you from following the truth? Certainly isn't God, for God is the one who called you to live in freedom. Now, this metaphor appeals to me because I'm a runner and I like doing races. And for a while, I coached a cross-country team at the middle school. And one of the things that happens in cross-country is uh, at the very end, as you're getting toward the finish line, the, there's a big bunch of ribbons and rope that kind of is channeling you in from a wide field and from the trails down into what's called the chute. And that's how you can get your placements right. You know, did you come in first or second? And what happens a lot of times is as you're running through the chute, somebody else tries to cut in front of you as it's getting narrower and narrower so they can place in front of you. And uh, what I would tell my team is, listen, cross country, it's not a contact sport. So you can't cut in front of people and knock them out of place as they come and try and cut you. But the rules of cross country state that the only time you can physically make contact with another runner is when you are in the chute, and that is the runner ahead of you, you are allowed to reach out and grab their jersey, not to hold them back, but if somebody's trying to cut in, the two of you run together, and that way that person has to place behind the two of you. They are not allowed to cut in, in front or in between the two of you. It's the only time contact is legal in cross-country. And so Paul is saying the same thing here. He's saying, listen, someone's trying to cut in on you. You were running a good race. You were ready. You were placing. This was good. And then somehow, when someone cut in front of you, it just threw you all off. And you were totally like, whoa, what's going on? And you've gotten off of your stride, out of your rhythm. You're, you're moving toward the finish line, and it's just getting stolen away from you. Don't let that happen. Don't let someone hold you back. Someone, those false teachers are cutting in on you. And before he even has a chance to catch his breath, he started into his next word picture. Those false teachers, this false teaching is like a little bit of yeast that spreads through a whole batch of dough. Verse 10, I'm trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings and God will judge that person, whoever he is, who's been confusing you. And this is another favorite metaphor that Paul uses in a number of his other writings to describe how ideas, both good ideas and bad ideas, get spread through groups of people. He says it's like yeast. You know, you put a little bit of yeast into some flour and some water, and before you know it, 
it spreads. And you can't then go back in and take a little piece out and go, Whoop, Kate, now there's no more yeast. The yeast has gotten into the hole of the dough. And so he's saying this false teaching, it's really spread. You put a little bit of yeast in there, these false teachers have, and now it's getting everywhere, and that's problematic. And we, if we had more time, we'd delve into the duality that Paul presents here because the tension is, do you just sit back and let God deal with that? Or Paul has stepped into this and written them a letter and said, hey, this is not good. So he's taken some action against the false teaching. And so that would be something you should head to the Quans Care Group when they study the book of Galatians and discuss a little bit. That kind of tension. Do you just trust the Lord or do you step into action at different points in time? What does that look like for Paul in this situation? But Paul has a punchline that he's building to in Galatians 5 verse 12. And in verse 11, he starts moving towards it. He's hitting his stride and he says, Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you should be circumcised, as some say that I'm doing, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no, no one would be offended. That's a super easy gospel. No one would be upset about that. But I just wish that these troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. So there's a real crudeness and a harshness to Paul's language, and it gets softened for us in the New Living Translation. The ESV, and if you look in your footnotes, it keeps it intact. He, Paul says about these teachers who are advocating circumcision, I wish they want to cut a little bit off the top, I wish they would go the whole way and actually emasculate themselves. And Paul here is probably referring to barbaric rituals that took place in this area in false uh, pagan worship in Galatian pagan temples. They worshipped in this town uh, a goddess of the earth called uh, Sebel. And the priests of Sebel in order to become a priest of Sebel, you were required to be castrated. So they took ritual pinchers and they went at it and then they would place that into a box. And such a box is now on display at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, England, if you care to go and visit it. But these false teachers are leading the Galatian Christians to think that the ritual of circumcision is sacred just like these pagan priests were saying that that was a sacred act that would bring them into fellowship with God. But Paul has already told them, no, 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 no. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And now he takes that, that right of circumcision and he puts it into the same category as ritual castration of the priests to a mother goddess of the earth. And he says, circumcision has no more significance than any other barbaric, bloody ritual that's getting practiced around you in the ancient world. And that's why Paul is taking so seriously the false teaching that's gaining ground in Galatia. You see, if you read the Torah, 
inside of those 613 commands, one of the very clear commands is that if your stuff was damaged to the point you were unable to reproduce, you were cut off from connection with the people of God, cut off from membership in God's people. And so Paul is doing a clever rhetorical move here. And Paul is likening circumcision, the traditional ritual of Jewish physical membership in the community, to pagan cutting rituals like we would see in the Old Testament, where do you remember when the prophets of Baal were trying to get uh, their God to do something, they cut themselves repeatedly as a sign of religious devotion. And Paul isn't just making a rude or crude joke. He's saying, do you realize how serious this actually is? Do you realize where this line of thinking will take you? This isn't about circumcision anymore. It's about what it represents. And when we think about it that way, it's what it represents not only for the Galatians, but also for us. It represents the notion that, and it's widely held in our day, oh, I can relate to God any way I want. I, if I want to add into my Christian faith a little bit of other practices from Buddhism, from whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, there's many ways that we can find God. If you want to add into your faith the notion that in order to stay in God's good books, you just need to do a lot of good works, well, that's good for you, our culture might say. But see, friends, this is a big deal. Once you start adding into the gospel, you no longer have the gospel. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And the minute you or I start to try and layer onto our saving faith, anything else, attitudes, actions that come from, well, faith is great, but just in case there's another way, I'm going to make sure I cover that basis as well. Friends, when we subtract or add anything to what it is that God has done, faith expressing itself in love. We need to identify that and cut it out. Because Paul makes his final point in verses 13 to 15. You've been called to live in freedom, my friends. Do not use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature, but instead use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. See, what's fascinating to me is that Paul is actually advocating a reverse kind of slavery. He's saying, like Harriet Tubman, once you know and once you've experienced freedom, you're free. But part of your call of living into and living out that freedom also binds you, not to some sense of rugged individualism to do whatever you want, it actually binds you to a new law. And Paul says that law is the law of love. The law is fulfilled when you and I learn to love our neighbor 
as ourselves, Paul says. And see, when we or the Christian community gets so caught up in internal discussions, squabbles about this and that, that they forget to demonstrate love to each other and love to a watching world. They're missing it, and we need to cut it out. See, friends, this is why we exist as a church. We are not here to form a nice, warm, cozy club where you can come and meet all of your friends weekly and feel good about yourself. We exist so that you are fueled and empowered for the work and the mission and the ministry that God has called you to in the world. You are called to embody God's love everywhere you go. And so the question that should come to us as we wrap up is, what is an act of loving my neighbor that I am going to undertake this week? And that will look differently for most all of us. Maybe there's a neighbor around you that needs just physical help and assistance in some way, moving, or maybe they're discouraged or suffering health challenges and they need a meal or childcare. Maybe there's another student in your class that struggles with English and you can provide some support as an act of love. Maybe for you, an act of love is going to be going to and participating in funding Guatemala this spring. Maybe you're gonna donate clothing that you have that's extra to or furnishings to a family that's in need. But whatever that looks like, faith always expresses itself in love. And so what is an act of neighbor love that you're going to undertake this week? The worship team's coming and they're going to lead us in a song of response. But one of the things that we're crystal clear about here at Jericho is that the love of God is so precious that we dare not keep it to ourselves. Our mission, friends, our role as people of faith, as those that are in this community that God has called to bear witness to, is to be the hands and feet of Jesus in Clayton and in Willoughby and beyond. And the freedom that we have in Christ is not just so that we can feel great about ourselves and have God declare righteousness of Jesus over us one day. The freedom that we have received is a Harriet Tubman-like freedom, where we are free and we rush back into those places where other people around us, our friends, our neighbors that we know, have not yet come to know and experience the freedom that Christ offers. And we head right back there into enemy territory, and we lead others to a life of hope and a life of freedom and a life of peace that is found only in Jesus. I want to invite you to stand uh, with me, and the team will lead us in a song that just declares 